Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. Thank you for joining us for tonight's program. This is about Esther, born to be queen. You may never have thought of Esther as a military leader, but let me tell you, she accomplished the one military mission that God said from the foundation of the nation of Israel, this is what you must do. They say that behind every great man is a great woman. Whether that is universally true is a matter of opinion, but it's certainly true for one woman who was chosen for a specific role at a specific time in history. She did not shy away from the task set before her, risking her own life for those of her people, and as such became a powerful military force. Intrigued? You should be. Let's join Dr Corbett for the final in his four-part series looking at the most inspirational women of the Bible. Tonight, Esther, born to be queen. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, we pray that, that your word would just come alive that you'll help us to hear it, you'll help us to see it, you'll help us to understand it. You'll help us, Lord, to be shaped by it, changed by it, and guided by it today. Father, I pray for those who've come in with questions, those who've come in with doubts, those who've come in with things that are weighing heavy on them, that today they'll hear one thing that will change everything. That, God, you would speak. You would speak into the situations where people are dealing with hurt and offence you'll speak into situations where relationships are strained you'll speak into situations where people have just begun a a journey perhaps where they've begun to lose faith in you and lack of trust in you and today I pray that that might be restored so father have your way today in Jesus name amen we are looking at the most inspirational women of, of the bible and so far we've looked at the women that in what will probably be the first in a series, this will be the the end of this first series, of women who feature prominently. And one of the things that, if we had the time, I would show you is that each of these women play a role in God's redemptive plan. And the whole message of the Bible from the beginning right to the end is just simply that one story, the story of redemption. The Bible is not like other religious books. And I hear people who usually people who are politicians and things say things like this you know the Quran and the Bible they're all basically the same and I can only think you've never read the Quran I cannot understand how anyone could possibly think that the Bible is completely different to any other religious book not even by a little bit by a big way and one of the the biggest differences is it's actually a story it has a beginning it has a middle it has an end It has a plot, it has something that it's trying to tell us and it's all done in story. And today I'm going to tell you a part of that piece, of one of the chapters in that as a story. And I hope that you'll be enthralled by this story. It's a beautiful story, it's an intriguing story and as with the story we looked at last week, it's an unusual story because there's all kinds of questions over whether it should even be in the Bible and last week's was probably the most commonly assaulted book in the Bible as to whether it should even be in the Bible and I I hope that last week I showed you it definitely should be in the Bible it it plays a prominent role in the story of redemption and redemption is that word it means rescue it means that something's gone wrong and we need a hero We need a hero. We need a rescuer. And this is one of the most, well, in fact, I'm going to call this woman Israel's 
greatest military leader. No other military leader compares to her. There are some great military leaders. The book of Judges tells the story of Judges, and and Judges sounds like, you know, wearing a a white wig and and having a, a wooden hammer, but Judges in the biblical sense means that someone that God used to judge an oppressor. Someone who came and set people free. And there's some amazing military warriors in, d- detailed in there. And if, if y- you don't understand that the Bible is raw and it's real and it contains the stories of things that went horribly wrong and sometimes in the, detailing the story of the nation of Israel from which Christ would eventually come, There's some horrible things that happened and there's some people that God raised up to rescue his people out of those horrible situations. But none of them, none of them, none of them come anywhere near this woman that we're about to look at. And I've got a bit of a depiction of her on the screen now. She doesn't look like she'd be one of the most ruthless killers ever to walk the planet. But it's the nice looking girls, boys, boys, boys. It's the nice looking girls you've got to watch out for. Except my wife. So this is about Esther, born to be queen. You may never have thought of Esther as a military leader, but let me tell you, she accomplished the one military mission that God said from the foundation of the nation of Israel, this is what you must do. This is the military expedition you must, must, must succeed at because if you don't, my entire redemption plan will be derailed. And certain of the military leaders, we have King Saul, he tried, he failed. In fact, he really failed. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. We have David who tried, he failed. We had other military leaders, kings of Judah, kings of Israel who tried, they failed. But this girl succeeded where every man had failed. To tell the story... I need to take you back in time to around about the year 483 BC. We're in Susa, which is the former capital city. It's actually still there, Shushan. It's the capital city of what was Persia. It's in Iran today. And to give you an idea of when we're sort of looking at 483 BC, this is 125 years after Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It's 50 years after the decree of Cyrus and Cyrus was the Persian emperor and Cyrus was the one who decreed that all Jews could now return to Jerusalem. So this was just some 50 years ago and in that time Cyrus has been succeeded by his son, and now we're sort of down closer to his grandson, Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, who is also known as Xerxes, with an X, Xerxes. And I won't go into the details too much in chapter 1 of the book of Esther, but in, in this book we, we have a detail of where he, he was a great military leader. He was someone not unaccustomed to military battles. And he had conquered where no one else had ever conquered. He, his kingdom, of all the world's empires, he managed to extend his empire almost, almost to the boundaries of what the Romans were eventually able to achieve. Pretty amazing. So this, this was a tough guy. 
And in chapter 1, he, he's throwing a party after one of his great conquests of where he's extended the kingdom, the boundaries of the empire. And his wife, Vashti, refused to come to the party. And he was offended and, and so she was banished. And so now we have the king of Persia, the emperor, beginning his quest in chapter 2 to replace Vashti, the banished queen, with a new wife who would be queen. And the reason that's a distinction is chances are he had many wives that were probably some kind of political alignments with other nations, but, but he needed a queen. And so the story goes in the book of Esther that her name was Hadassah. Hadassah, she's described in a very... It's a very polite way of describing her, actually. Um, she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, I don't expect any gentleman here today to describe any women you might meet after the service, say, my, you have a lovely figure and you're beautiful to look at. <laughs> Probably not going to go down too well. But this tells us a lot about Hadassah. Now, by the way, I've heard people say Hadassah was her Hebrew name. No, it wasn't. This was actually a Babylonian name. In other words, Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is. This was an Iraqi name. This was a, more or less an Arab name, Hadassah. So we get the picture. She was very, very beautiful. And she was selected to go into the contest, the beauty contest, to become the king's chosen wife and thereby the queen of the empire. Before entering into the competition, Hadassah was given a name change by her, her cousin, her cousin Mordecai, who was quite a bit older than her because Hadassah was orphaned. Now, there's probably good reason to pause right now and go, what kinds of issues would an orphaned girl be facing in life generally? And... Chances are an orphaned girl, and I, I don't know, I haven't particularly looked at the research whether it would affect an orphaned boy in the same way, but an orphaned girl would have all kinds of, I'm imagining, insecurities just associated with doing life. She was raised by her cousin who, from her perception, was as much a dad to her as her own father. In fact, I've written an article about Mordecai on the FindingTruthMatters.org website where I make the claim that Mordecai, her cousin, was probably the preeminent father in the Bible even though he never married and he never had any children. But what he did for Hadassah was extraordinary. The way he taught her about the ways of God, the way he taught her to be a woman, the way he encouraged her beauty is just amazing. Well, one of the interesting things, as someone in the church pointed out to me, is that in the very beginning it says God made Adam. And, and the, the word uh, bara is, is to take that which is and reform it. And, but the interesting thing is that when it says God in English made woman, it's not the same word. It's now a different word. 
And you get the picture in Genesis chapters 1 and then the detail in Genesis chapter 2 which sort of goes into the verse 26 and 27 of Genesis 1 gives us the detail of that. That every time God created, it was an improvement. Every time he created. And so we have God creating Adam. And then he created woman. And the Hebrew word is not made, not reformed, not took that which was and just sort of reshaped it. The Hebrew word is beautified. If you get the progression in Genesis 1, every step of creation was an improvement. And when he created woman, he didn't just create her, he beautified something out of Adam. So women pride themselves in their beauty today and you may wonder why that is and if you've got daughters and you have to get them to school in the morning (laughs) I'm hearing that many of you understand where I'm going with this that the the battle is not getting their uniform on it's getting their hair brushed and getting it no that's not right let's start again it's like what the heck guys I had a son I have still have a son don't don't (laughs) I still do have a son and He'd wake up in the morning and we'd be walking down to the bus and go, Tyrone, did you do your hair? Nah. <laughs> anyway, women take pride in their beauty. And quite frankly, there are some who... Anyway, so thank, praise the Lord. Anyway, here's Esther. Her name is changed to Esther from Hadassah. And again, that's not a Hebrew name. Her name means in the Persian language, Venus. Now, in those days, the Persians thought Venus was a star, not a planet, a star. And they called it the beautiful star. So her name was changed to beautiful star. It actually fits that picture that I've just described to you of what God did to Eve. He didn't just make her. He made her beautiful. And there's something very organically beautiful about that, that men can look at women and can, in the purest sense, say, she's got a lovely figure and she's pleasant to look at, without it having the connotations that it might have today. But here's this girl, young girl. How old might she be? 18, 19, selected for this beauty contest? She goes into the contest with a name change from Mordecai, Esther, beautiful star. Esther was put in the care because she, she met that first round of approval. She was selected to go down into the last, you know, whatever it was, last 20 or whatever it was from all over the empire. And she's put into the care of a beautician and a, and a perfumer by the name of Hegai. Now, if you're into what's called typology, typology is where things in the Old Testament actually represent things in the New Testament. So, for example, when you're reading about animal sacrifices in the, uh, the second, third, and fourth books of the Bible, uh, they all, in some way, speak of Christ, in some way. This guy, Hegai, was one of the king's eunuchs, which means he was interacting with the king's harem without any possibility of lust, without any possibility of acting sexually or anything like that. So he was completely trustworthy. Haggai. And the typology here is it says that for six months she underwent beauty treatment. 
under the supervision of Haggai. Then for another six months, she was given fragrances that made her fragrance. Six months. So you can imagine that. Twelve months of beauty treatment. Haggai is a type of the Holy Spirit and what he does in the believer. He takes us from what we were, and for some, that perfuming involves bathing and perfuming. And you know, the Bible actually says that when you become a follower of Christ, your spiritual fragrance changes. Paul talks about that in his epistle to the Corinthians. He says that we are an aroma of life, a fragrance of life. So there's something about that. So Haggai represents the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. It says that when she was selected down, even for the last few, she was put into the care of what we might call a finisher. And the finisher, his name, he was another eunuch, so completely trustworthy with the king's harem. This was Shashgaz, a finisher. And he's a type of the church, or particularly pastors, shepherds. You see, you could live your Christian life in your lounge room, I guess, but you wouldn't grow much. You could live your Christian life watching, excuse me, I'm going to use a horrible expression, Christian TV, and think that's church and that's me growing and this is all, you know, I'm, this is how I'm going to grow in my walk with God. You would, apart from being very deluded, you may be able to, you may, but it's highly unlikely. And it's highly unlikely because scripture actually prescribes how you and I are to grow in our relationship with Christ. And it's based on 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, and it says this, God gifts our brothers and sisters with gifts that we need in order for us to receive the grace of God. It says this, the, the, the manifold or the very grace of God is given to each one to minister to each one. So we need each other. And Shashgaz, he's like the pastor who's doing what I'm doing, shaping us with the word of God so that we, we are according to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. We come and although we've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, which speaks of how he's taken us and rescued us, we still get our hands dirty, our face dirty, our feet dirty, and we come and the water of God's word washes us and we refocus back on Christ. Our eyes are clean and, we, and this, is what church, this is the valley of church. And, and so he's a type of the church, type of particularly pastors, shepherds, what they do. So we pick the story up in Esther chapter 2 and verse 15. And it says this, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, that was her father, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing, listen to the trust, except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. Even the other contestants. Pretty amazing. We go on to the next verse. Verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all 
the women. And she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Wow, it's a beautiful love story, isn't it? It's, wow, it's great. You could just about, and they lived happily ever after. But there's more. In fact, there's more. And, and to tell you the more, I need to tell you something that's not in the text, but it's implied in the text. And every Jew who would have read this, they would, as soon as they see the key words, they would know straight away what I'm about to tell you. Now, I, I don't think we've come from that kind of background, so let me tell you what you might be missing out on in the text if you're not familiar with this. So to do that, I have to take you back 30 years before this. So let's go back 30 years. So meanwhile, 30 years earlier in the northwest part of the empire. So if I was to sketch a map here for you, I'd have the Mediterranean Sea um, there, uh, Israel over here. Uh, we've got um, desert here. And, and that's why whenever anyone from here wanted to invade Israel, they had to go up and around. So they always came from the north. And Israel, over here, just almost, well, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, we've seen that in, in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem and all the Jews were scattered. North and south, there's, there's just no one there. And the Jews went up and around the desert and they went into Babylon and, and what happened was the Persians who were up here came and conquered Babylon and they relocated some of these people up to their capital Susa. So you, is my map doing okay? We're, all, we're okay? So here we are here. Now up over here there's a territory called Magog and that's where we are right now as a grandfather is telling his children about their long line of descendants, or rather ancestors, might, excuse me, who were kings, kings of their own land. But their land was stolen. Their people were butchered and slaughtered. And apart from some of the members of the last king's surviving family of which we are all now the grandfather was telling his grandchildren of which we are the survivors and we have now spread into this part of the empire and we we were over here right near where Israel was and those people they invaded our land and they took us out and we have been robbed by them robbed you can imagine this going on generation after generation after generation because that grandfather was a grandfather and sorry that grandfather had a grandfather who told him the same story and so for generation after generation these people living up here in this part this territory known if you've got a bible it'll show you magog up in that part of the territory just below the caspian sea that here they are they they are passing down generation to generation their loathe loathing and their hatred for the jews whom they called the filthy invaders who took their people and massacred them and slaughtered them. And these are barbarous, butcherous people. And one day we will have our vengeance. And one of the little boys, one of the little boys, he heard that and he said, that's my job. 
I'm going to do that. I'm going to avenge my ancestors. And he grew up with this burning ambition that one day he would be the one to avenge his ancestors. And so making a vow to his gods that if they would help him, he would do all he could to leave his small town in Magog and make his way to the capital of the empire and make a name for himself and become a somebody so that he could take a position of power worthy of the kings of which he was in the long line of. Well, this was what was in his heart. That one day he would take that vengeance on these filthy invaders that his ancestors had been telling him about as he grew up. These people who slaughtered his ancestors and stole their land. As it turns out, his plan unfolded perfectly. He moved to the capital, just as he'd schemed. He got a position in the public service of the emperor and he quickly climbed that ladder in the public service of the empire. He rose to a position of almost utmost power. And we pick the story up in Esther chapter 3 and verse 1 where it says this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. You read about his ancestors in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So plan is unfolding. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. By the way, the king's gate was a, a, a precinct of the public service. This is where people could come with problems and things like this. And they could go to the gate and they could have their problems dealt with. This is, so it was an official position. But Mordecai, Esther's cousin... Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And this ticked Haman the Agagite off. By the way, King Agag was the last king of the Amalekites. Haman's running with Mordecai, the Jew, only reinforced everything his grandfather and his ancestors, his father and so on, had been telling him about Jews. The hatred was palpable. And he, he was filled, it says in the text, with fury. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Haman the Agagite renewed the vow that he made in his childhood to avenge the slaughter of his ancestor, King Agag, by these Jews. And there was one of them, Mordecai. But he knew, Haman knew, I've just got to bide my time. We go into chapter 3 and verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, that is, Mordecai is a Jew, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman deceived the emperor and allowed him to launch a 
pogrom against the Jews. A pogrom is a genocide. That's what it means. So a pogrom was launched in World War II during the time of World War II against the Jews by the Nazis. A pogrom, a deliberate program to annihilate an entire ethnicity of people. And Haman sought permission from the emperor and got it. And it says in verse 10, So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all Jews. Hear the hatred in this? Young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So one day he was going to wipe out every Jew on the planet. That was his aim. That's what a pogrom is. And when Mordecai heard of Haman's evil plan, he led a very, very public protest. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select The Most Inspirational Women of the Bible, Part 4, Esther, from our online store. As we've heard tonight, Esther was promoted for her beauty and for the favour she received from King Ahasuerus. Was her discovery and royal appointment an accident? Unlikely. In obedience and with phenomenal courage, she put her life on the line and instigated the most incredible military victory. She was chosen for that time in history and she responded to the call. That's the conclusion of this series, The Most Inspirational Women of the Bible. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College here in Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.